The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. In honor of National Child Abuse Prevention Month, we talk with Dr. Tia Kim, Vice President of Education, Research, and Impact at Committee for Children. With a doctorate in developmental psychology, Tia and her team of research scientists track the pulse of the education field and answer the really hard questions about children's social-emotional well-being. Tia joins us today to speak about hotchocolatetalk.org, a bold campaign that empowers parents and caregivers to have the conversation with their kids about child sexual abuse. Tia shares how she speaks with her own children about body boundaries, how parents and caregivers can start the conversation, and how this talk is different from talking about the birds and the bees. Here are your hosts, Mia and Andrea. Mia? Andrea? Did you have like some clear safety rules in your home growing up? Were there things that your parents were particularly oh, when concerned about? when I was about? little? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that there was, you know, a lot of clarity around things, not the way people talk about things now. Um, but my mother, ever the cautious person that she is, did tell me about stranger danger. And it was very much in that, like, I definitely had that somebody's going to try and lure me into their car with a candy Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I was very wary of strangers. So, you know, it was news to me and probably a lot of people when, you know, you start to find out the real statistics about, like, who Mm -hmm. is usually posing the most danger to a child, right? Yeah, I just kind of think about this during um, Child Abuse Prevention Month because... I feel like I had some kind of inconsistent rules, but general terror about, yeah. <laughs> like general family terror about somehow encountering strangers or being kidnapped by strangers. Yeah. And I have such a big like after school specials. And we did talk about that at school. In fact, we had um, code words, which actually at a summer camp, my kids are going to, they have to have a code word for pickup um, now. But I remember we would do these practice conversations if somebody was trying to pick me up or said that they were sent by my parent, I'd have to ask them for the code word. And I practiced with my grandmother kind of responding to them. Um, Yeah. So I think that was like the primary um, fear and approach when I was little also. Right. But also they were kind of like, yeah, go like play around the neighborhood for six hours without any contact. I think that a lot of that had to do with, you know, what was happening in the media. At least when I was growing up, it was the Ted Bundy era. And I grew up in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that is in the forefront of everyone's mind. And it's going to be... Everyone who grows up in Seattle should worry about serial killers. Like a handsome stranger. Because there's an unusual proportion of... Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. One of the things that we talk about here at Committee for Children, it's like not always related to social emotional learning, but we kind of started off in that abuse prevention space, in particular child sexual abuse prevention. We kind of think of that in the context of safety. And so we have a a dual mission of safety and well-being through social emotional development. And so we do a lot of research and learning in this topic, and we've done programs around it. And I think that like one of my favorite things that we've done in the last you know, a couple of years is the hot chocolate talk. Yeah, it is such a cool campaign. So remind me how that started. So there were a few individuals and who had been working kind of with our programs, with research, and also with just communications and advocacy, um, thinking about how we could 
help parents and families and communities have conversations with kids that explicitly addressed some of the research and approaches around sexual abuse prevention. So what are the kind of strategies that we could help parents kind of easily communicate to their kids that would um, help kids in kind of learning touching rules, safety rules, and also in feeling comfortable having conversations with their parents if those rules were broken or not being followed. And it was really um, clear from the folks that were sort of in the communications piece of it and looking at um, how we do national campaigns and public service announcements that it needed to be friendly and approachable. It can't be, of course, it's a terrifying topic. It's a scary topic, but um, it's a necessary one. And you kind of have to normalize having conversations with your kids about safety, just as you would talk about seatbelts or, you know, some of these other kind of safety rules. Like there, we have some rules around how people interact with us and what's acceptable as far as touching. And, and here's how we're going to kind of talk about it and approach those rules. And so one way that, you know, that kind of creative team came up with of talking about that is the hot chocolate talk, which is really um, you make an intention to go out with your kid and have kind of a a personal and special conversation about um, what the safety rules in your family are around in particular touching. And you just do that over a, a cup of hot chocolate, something that kind of makes you feel safe and warm and like it's a moment that you can share together to create trust around that topic. Yeah, and we've been doing it a couple of years now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what are some of the responses that we've gotten from people around the campaign? Well, I, people seem to really love it, um, and schools and, and families have reached out to us. And actually, you know, our, our guest today, our very own Dr. Tia Kim, can tell us a little more about some of the results of some of the materials that are used in that campaign to, to support parents and kids. Um but overall, it's it's been an overwhelmingly positive response, and people seem really thankful for having concrete yeah. research-based ways to have these difficult conversations with their kids um, and to create a kind of pattern of having those conversations. So I think it's been really effective, um, and I'm really excited to, to talk more about sexual abuse prevention today. It's weird to say I'm excited about that, but I just think it's such an important topic, and it's so difficult for people to really engage in because it's scary. And it's not meant to be just like a one-time thing, right? Right. Because right. that it just made me think that when you were saying a pattern. Right. Right? Yeah. And so we can talk more about that with Tia, who we're grudgingly allowing into our <laughs> our podcast space today. Our podcast cave. <laughs> but who, who we love and work with frequently here at Committee for Children, Dr. Tia Kim, our VP of Education Research and Impact. Welcome, uh, Tia. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. I've heard very, very good things about your podcast. I've have listened. you not listened? I've also listened. I, I have to admit, I haven't listened to all of them, but oh. I've listened to a few of them, and they're great. Are you going to listen to this one? Yes, I'll listen okay. to this one. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's always weird to listen to yourself, I think. That's true. Yeah, you never sound like you sound no. in your head. <laughs> so, well, Tia, we're so glad that you're giving us some time today to talk I know you're super busy and, you know, you have a big role here at Committee for Children, but I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit how about how you got started. Um, you know, what sort of brought you to this field and youth violence in particular? What was the interest there? Sure. Um, I have a very unique story in that I'm not like most kids, and I knew from a very, very young age exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to get a PhD in psychology and be a psychologist and help kids. And really where that came from and stemmed from was from my own kind of childhood and adolescence. And so 
I was very, I had very high goals and expectations. I really pushed myself academically, but at the same time, I like to have a really good time. <laughs> and so I probably hung out with a crowd that if I'm a mother now, I wouldn't want my kids to hang out with. And so, you know, they like to have a good time too. So I'll just leave it at that. But I never <laughs> partook in some of the behaviors that they were engaging in. I just like to hang out with them because it was fun but still maintained really good grades, did really well academically. I think when I finished high school, my GPA was 4.3 hmm. um, because I had aspirations, it was right? I had weighted. To, yeah. Because it was a weighted GPA. Yeah, and I took a lot of AP classes and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And, you know, again, my goal was always to get a PhD. You had to do really good in school to get mm -hmm. into a graduate program. And so I think I was always a researcher at heart. And so I was always thinking, huh, it's really interesting that all these people that have come from kind of similar backgrounds and similar upbringings have very different trajectories in life. And why is that? And so I was like, this is what I want to study. And I want to figure out how I can prevent probably some of my friends' behavior <laughs> um, or people like them in the future. And so, you know, I really had to focus on figuring out how to prevent the behavior. So that was always really my area of research and study um, going through college and graduate school and really focusing in particular at that time, really looking at ethnic minority youth, particularly Asian American youth, because, you know, I am Asian American. Most of my friends were. And I felt like oftentimes there was this like model minority myth mm. that all of them were going to be really great. And a lot of my friends were not model minorities. So um, just that gave an extra layer of my thinking and helped contribute to what I wanted to study. So that's kind of my journey. And again, like I said, it started at a very young age and kind of continued. And that's kind of how I got led into the field. Wow. So, you know, when you came to CFC, you had this background in kind of violence prevention research. And, and you, I think you've kind of told us before, you always had that you wanted to do something, you wanted mm -hmm. it to be applied, right? Yep. And so that was a, a good opportunity. Um, in your role here at CFC, how's your knowledge around adverse childhood experiences and sexual abuse in particular deepened? Like, how do you think about that? Because we primarily work in social emotional learning. Yeah. So, so what's this, this other piece about for you? So I think what's really interesting, when I started at CFC about seven years ago, the first program that I worked on when I was here, when I started as a researcher, was actually our Second Step Child Protection Unit, which is our child sexual abuse prevention program. And at the time, it was a revamp or revise of our original sexual abuse prevention program, which was um, talking about touching. And so it wasn't a huge part of kind of my education and background, but I had to get very deeply steeped into it pretty quickly because I was working on the program. I think, again, I'm really a prevention person at heart. And so when I started really learning about it more and reading about it more, I was always thinking about, okay, what are ways that we can prevent this from happening, which I think is a good tie-in to what we do here at Committee for Children. Yes, yeah, so let's, let's take a little step back because at Committee for Children, a lot of the times people think about our work as really being focused around social-emotional learning and probably a lot of our listeners mm -hmm. who have listened to previous podcasts will know that we talk about kindness and, and social and emotional learning and that sort of thing. And so let's do a little bit of context mm -hmm. setting for them around child sexual abuse prevention, um, kind of around how prevalent is it, um, what are the de demographics of the victims mm -hmm. and the perpetrators, and how about like long-term negative effects? I think it's something that is more prevalent than people expect or suspect. Recent studies have shown that approximately 1 in 20 boys and 1 in 4 girls are sexually abused before they're adults. 
but oftentimes I hear that this is probably a statistic that is underreported or underrepresented because it's something that people don't naturally talk about a lot, or if it does happen, doesn't get reported. Yeah. I think in terms of demographics for um, perpetrators and victims, I think the number one thing that people have to remember around that statistic is that it really is someone that you know. Um, and it isn't, you said it earlier mm-hmm. when, you know, when you were growing up, it was about stranger danger. It really isn't. Um, typically, perpetrators are people that are close to the family, that the family members really trust. And so I think that's the most important thing to remember, particularly um, as we talk about parents. And you were talking earlier, Andrea, about the hot chocolate campaign and the videos in there that we have and the resources. We talk a lot about that. I think around other statistics, um, typically perpetrators tend to be over, you know, majority male. But, you know, that always gets to me a little bit because then people tend to think, well, then females aren't doing that either. And I don't think that's true. Um, And then another really interesting statistic from the National Center for Crimes for Victims is that one third of perpetrators tend to be juveniles themselves. Mm -hmm. And many of those juveniles have been sexually abused as well. So yeah, so it's a cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So again, it goes back to my idea about prevention Mm -hmm. and how important that is. And what are some of the long-term effects of of having experienced sexual abuse? Um, I think there are both short-term and long-term effects that, you know, starting from childhood into your adolescence and adulthood, you know, again, re-victimization is one, um, issues with physical and mental health, um, some oftentimes substance abuse. Um, So, you know, there could be very harmful effects, both short-term and long-term. And I feel, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, as, as you were wont to do. (laughs) <laughs> but um, at one point we talked about some of those effects, like how you can mitigate those effects. So if the abuse has occurred or is occurring, interrupting that, like having intervention and that there are um, kind of good stats on recovery mm-hmm. from from sexual abuse. And um, I think that's one of the reasons that we really emphasize reporting. Um, so is it's there are some strategies around prevention, um, but where that fails making sure that kids understand how to report um, and adults understand the signs and those kinds to interrupt that because they're, but having that intervention can, can really um, significantly mitigate those outcomes, right? Those negative outcomes. Is that true? Yeah. I think, you know, if you look at the research and, and look at what is really good prevention around child sexual abuse, it really is taking an ecological model, right? So there are definitely skills that you could teach kids to help them, you know, you know, either refuse the behavior or be able to report it. Um, But I think adults are just as important in prevention as kids are. And adults, you know, everywhere in their lives. So definitely parents, Mm -hmm. um, also educators, um, and really being um, supportive um, if kids disclose to them, and listening and being able to report that as well, like you said, Andrea, to kind of stop the cycle. Yeah. So Tia, it might not be completely obvious to our listeners that there's a connection between social emotional learning and child sexual abuse prevention. And so talk a little bit about, you know, how did we go from having a program called Talking About Touching, which was a separate and standalone program from our Second Step program, to it becoming um, part of the Child Protection Unit, which is a part of Second Step. And what's the benefit of that connection? Mm-hmm. Well, I think in a lot of ways, social-emotional learning and social-emotional skills that we teach kids, you know, like in our program, like Second Step, is really foundational to being, to better able kids to, you know, again, report the behavior mm-hmm. if it's happening to them. 
um, be able to resist the behavior. For instance, in our second step program, we teach lessons around assertiveness and assertiveness skills. Um, and those are things that can be really helpful in terms of child sexual abuse prevention. Yeah. And, you know, for the kids, but also I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, lately for in, in terms of bullying prevention. But it seems to me that there's also some piece for the adults that would be interesting to talk about. We've been promoting a message around being open and inviting your kids to talk so that you know if they're being bullied, if you know that they're being abused in some way. And one of the things that I'm starting to notice amongst you know people that I talk to and, and um, peers is that kids are talking more, and that's really hard on the parents mm -hmm. because it's really hard to hear some that information mm -hmm. sometimes. And so what... What do we have for adults to, to make them prepared to actually receive a report? Mm -hmm. A few things. So, again, we mentioned our child protection unit. Mm -hmm. And in that revamp from talking about touching, we did add a very robust adult training for mm -hmm. educators um, in schools. And so they definitely receive training and skills in there about how to you know listen and be supportive when kids disclose to them and how to recognize signs of abuse as well. Um, and then I think for parents, um, you're right, it's a very hard topic to talk about. Mm -hmm. It can be very uncomfortable. Um, but I think things like our hot chocolate campaign where we're providing resources like um, family videos that help parents talk about the topic are things that they can use to be able to start those conversations. What are some of the things in, in the videos what are some of the strategies or, or some of the language that parents are supposed to use with kids? I think some of the things that we're trying to teach in the videos is to have the conversation often, mm -hmm. um, all the time, and you know, obviously early on in their life and kind of continually, I think is really important um, to just, it doesn't have to be perfect, and it's not going to be, because mm -hmm. it's kind of uncomfortable, um, but to really show kids that they're that the parent or caregiver is there for them and that they'll you know believe them and listen to them and be supportive I think is really important um, messages that we're trying to tell in the videos. Do you talk to your own kids about yes, sexual abuse? Yes, I do all the time. Um, I think that's really um, a function of being a developmental psychologist. <laughs> and, you're you're um, probably talking to them about absolutely everything. everything They're like, yes. leave us alone. So, and, you know, reading all the research over mm -hmm. my career about how important, you know, good parent-child relationships are, how um, having, you know, conversations that oftentimes can be very uncomfortable are really important for positive outcomes. And so um, having all that information, I talk to my kids very, very often. My kids, um, when I was working on the Child Protection Unit, were much younger, so I would test content on them. And <laughs> um, part of the things that are in some of our videos came from direct interactions I had with my kids and gave me ideas to kind of implement in the videos. Mm. Um, but it's conversations I, I've had with them since they were very, very young and we continue to have. Um, of course, it looks very different than when they were five and now mm. my older one is, you know, almost 12. So I have employed some of this with my children as well and we try to do, hot, but we do it, you know, very frequently and, and opportunistically too. Yeah. So when uh, a question comes up about, you know, kind of unsafe touching in general, we kind of revisit it. And so I try to take those opportunities and I have to say, it's still hard to do it yeah. and to get over some of your own kind of concerns about that. Or if you're talking about sex 
which is not what you're talking about, yeah. right? So why aren't parents and caregivers having conversations about this with their kids? What do you think some of the blockers are there? Well, definitely, I think, I've, like I've said a lot <laughs> on this podcast, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Interestingly, we have some researchers from the University of Buffalo that have been evaluating our child protection unit, the curriculum that's done in classrooms. But also a few years ago, they actually uh, evaluated our family videos that are going to be shown on our hot chocolate campaign. And they found really good results. But they also did a lot of focus groups with a diverse set of parents across the country. And the big theme that came out of those focus groups of why don't you talk about this with your kids, because most of them didn't, was that they just didn't think it was going to happen to their kids. Mm -hmm. So um, particularly for when they had sons or boys. Mm -hmm. So they just didn't think it was that prevalent. They didn't Mm -hmm. think it was going to happen to their kids. But, you know, I just said the statistic earlier in the podcast, it can. Yeah, one in 20 is is a lot. lot. And that's that's reported. Correct. So So I think that's the biggest hurdle that parents, um, at least from the focus groups Mm -hmm. that was coming out, and I thought that was very, very interesting. I think another thing um, that parents said in that focus group was that you know, you're kind of saying mixed messages, right? So on one hand, you tell your kids, trust adults, be respectful, Mm -hmm. listen to them. But at the same time, when you're talking about child sexual abuse prevention, you're also saying, actually, don't really trust them, right? You can say no if you want to. You know, in some cultures, yeah, in some cultures, that's kind of disrespectful, Mm -hmm. right? So it's confusing mixed messages. And so for parents, it's really hard for them to navigate Mm -hmm. that when they're kind of confused about it, and particularly when you have really young kids, right? That's a good call out. And I think also, you know, the awkwardness and uncomfortableness of having the talk is one part of it. Yes. And then the other piece that I feel doesn't really get that much attention is what happens when they tell you. Yes. And it's not just like about listening. It's about dealing with your devastation as a parent to know that something like that has happened to your child. child. I mean, that is... I feel like that is something, like, whether it's um, Mm -hmm. sexual abuse or whether it's bullying or something Something else, else. you know, there there isn't a lot for parents out there about how to deal with something really big like that happening in your family. And I think particularly the important thing around child sexual abuse, if your child discloses to you, is to just really believe them Mm -hmm. um, and to be supportive in that um, situation as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I think about this disconnect between what you're saying and then kind of your actions as a parent sometimes, one of the things that I struggle with is, you know, I kind of have this, like, nobody should force anything on your body, mm-hmm. right? Like, your body is yours, um, and, and we talk about, you know, the rules, like, you know, no one's allowed to touch your private body parts, those kinds of rules. But then you have to make them brush their teeth, yeah. right? <laughs> so there's this, like, um, constant kind of erosion of your, like, here's your your it's your body and I really want you to, to feel empowered in your body and I want you to talk to me if somebody is, is breaking that mm-hmm. trust and that rule. And also, I'm going to brush your hair. I have to brush your hair yeah. and it hurts and you don't yeah. like it and you want me to stop. And so having the, it's hard to commit to the conversations about like kind of getting them to understand why you have to do certain things or for your, to keep your body healthy or things that you don't like. And that's, I find that to be a kind of uh, consistent disconnect from, I don't know how much it 
is disconnected for them. Yeah. But for me, it feels like, oh, I'm... And how do you explain it, right? right? Where you're still trying to get the message across, but also getting them to brush their hair, right? Right. And I think it's the same thing that you're saying that that was coming out in the focus groups. It's like, we want to teach our kids these things and talk to them about it. But at the same time, it kind of goes against some of the other things we teach them. I know I struggled a lot when, you know, I was working on the child protection unit because there's a lesson around um, or scenario about um, not hugging your grandpa or something like that. And, you know, culturally that was really Mm -hmm. hard for me. Because in my family, it's you hug every elder, mm-hmm. right? And even if you didn't want to, you're mm-hmm. like, you got to hug your grandpa, you got to mm-hmm. hug your aunt, you got to hug your great aunt. And so, you know, we talked about that when we were writing the lesson because it's at the same time, you do, it is consent, right? And you do want them mm-hmm. to have control over what they want. Right. You and the other adult, won't, that, like, for instance, the grandma will say, no, you you have to just give me a hug. Yeah. You have to hug. Don't you love me? Yeah, exactly. Like these things. Yeah. <laughs> I, my approach to that has been having those conversations with other adults, adults in their lives yeah. proactively. Mm-hmm. Like here's, you know, you know, the, and sometimes I'm, I do it in this kind of like, you know, the work I do, right. Yeah. Or, you know, that's not kind of offensive to them, but you know, I got to have a little paranoia about these things. And this is an easy thing we can do. To make them confident yeah. in, in being able to refuse, you know, a touch from an yeah. adult. And so I I talk, and it doesn't mean that it works all the time, but I just have those proactive conversations with adults in our lives, mm-hmm. you know, to varying degrees of success. Right. And I feel like as more par- um, parents and adults become aware of the topic mm-hmm. and issues around consent like this, like mm-hmm. I was just recently visiting a cousin of mine. I'm like, oh, give Auntie Erica a hug. And my kid was kind of like, oh, I don't really see them. She's like, it's all right. I get it. If mm-hmm. you don't want to, you don't have to, right? right? So, like, yeah. she recognized that that mm-hmm. was happening. So as more and more people kind of can become aware of the issue, it's an easier conversation to have. Yeah. And then we were also talking about just confusion for kids because at some point, you know, you're talking about, you know, appropriate, inappropriate kinds of touching. But at some age, like yeah. you're talking <laughs> about your kids get older, and then you do have birds and bees talk, yes. and then it gets, mm-hmm. you know, very confusing for them. I mean, and you've had kids kind of go up through that. How have Mm -hmm. you sort of navigated that? You know, again, I think the birds and bees talk is a very difficult talk too, Mm -hmm. right? For a lot of parents. And again, it's about just having, for me at least, and again, part of it's being from my developmental psychology background and just understanding the importance of having good parental conversations is just about having open conversations around it. And some of the topics overlap, right? Like it's both topics, sexual abuse prevention and birds and bees talk is just talking about private body parts for both, right? Yeah. Um, but they're fundamentally kind of two different topics. I mean, there's some overlap too around consent and things like that, but I think it's about having open conversations with your kids, again, all the time at an early age um, so that they can come talk to you when they have questions and, and come reach out to you. I'd much rather have my kids ask me a question then try to go find it on the internet where it might be incorrect yeah. or ask or the friends. Friend. Oh, yeah. We are, I already have that with my six-year-old. He totally believes his friends over, over you? me. <laughs> and I'm like, I have a lot more experience than your friends. I have a grown-up brain that has had to think about these things. Like, can't you listen to me? <laughs> no. No, so-and-so says that this bug does this. And I'm like, I can actually look it up on the internet and tell you from a reliable source, but it will not usurp the... Yes. The perspective of that that six year old bug scientist. <laughs> well, two six year old brains. Two six year old. So where where should parents have 
these these sorts of talks? Where, when? I mean, my the first answer comes in, that comes to my head is all the time, everywhere. <laughs> um, and I know that's not possible. I mean, for me, um, and you know, I have these conversations all the time. It doesn't mean that it, it's never hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they are. Um, but I think it gets easier with practice. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think you can do, particularly on child sexual abuse um, prevention talks, is in natural occurring scenarios or contexts, right? So when my kids were younger, I'd have to give them baths. Um, I'd have to help them when they were going to the bathroom. And so it's a natural place because you're touching their body to have those conversations. Um, as you get older, um, again, using different scenario or context. So now as my kids are older, it's before they go to someone's house. Remember, mm-hmm. you know, let me know if something happens or some, you know, something that happens makes you feel uncomfortable, those kinds of things. Um, and then for me, something that's really worked is um, having these difficult conversations in natural times and places where you have kind of deep conversations. So for us, we always have what we call our special talks right before bed, so like when we tuck mm-hmm. them in. And I still do that with my 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are, you know, where we talk about kind of more meaty topics mm-hmm. or another place I like to do a lot is in the car because you have a lot of yeah time to be able to do that. But I think wherever you can fit it in and it seems kind of natural is the easiest thing. And trust me, um, the kids are not that uncomfortable with you talking right. about it. Yeah. It's yeah. only you as an adult. Yeah, we or talk about it being kind of scary or whatever. They have none no, of that. None of it. They don't. Yes. You know, um, they don't have those same kind of connotations. It's, and again, it's not a sex talk. No. It's it's a it's a safety talk. talk. Yes. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. So my kids don't have any. It's like all me. Any yeah. of any well, of Well, when me. they're little. I mean, well, you know, when they we, get older, that's true. They'll about, be uncomfortable you know, if they're older. Like, yeah. <laughs> as they get older, things change. You know, that's one yeah. of the things that we were just talking about. And, you know, I actually am also curious about whether you have thoughts about whether the, the kind of talks that you have with girls versus boys, you know, and, and right now we've kind of been talking about, like, keeping yourself safe. Mm-hmm. How do you have the conversations about respecting other people's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, private parts yeah. and... And then how does that morph into, you know, when it's like starting to have relationships, Mm -hmm. you know, because at some point it seems to me that there is a different kind of conversation you want to have with boys and girls. Yeah. I think it it probably is a different conversation, but I think fundamentally the messages that you're trying to teach are are the same, right? And, And the same foundation, right? So, you know, your body is your body and you should be able to say when, you know, it's okay for someone to touch you. And as you get older, mm-hmm. that may be okay, right? And being able to articulate that mm-hmm. and having good communication back and forth. Um, or when someone tells you it's not okay, okay then and it's mm-hmm. not you okay. have to listen to right? Them. Yeah, right. just like when you tell someone, mm-hmm. you would want them to listen to mm-hmm. you, right? No, we try to use, I mean, this is, again, younger kids, but mm-hmm. in our house, for instance, um, if they're having trouble just keeping their hands to themselves or pinching or chasing, or we try to use those moments too. Yeah. And we, and, and we um, try to talk about, body language Mm. right look you know my son like he will pick on his sister and i'll say look at her face right now does her face look like she likes that touch like does it um does she look like she wants you to be touching her body right now Mm -hmm. like that sound she made that was a no sound i mean you kind of talk about it because i think also um people express um you know, their, their levels of like fear or their acceptance of t- in different ways. Yep. So I, I think we were trying to like 
take a lot of opportunities to just talk about like everybody's body is their body and they get to choose how you interact with their body and well, good point, too, about words and sounds or looks. Right. Because mm-hmm. not everybody feels well, articulated. Yeah, right. to say it in words. Well, like right? I talk to my older son now about, you know, you have to, sometimes you have to ask people mm-hmm. what they're thinking or they're feeling because not everybody will yeah. be able to articulate it, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's, again, as they get older, your conversations become more nuanced, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, Tia, what kind of advice do you have for parents whose kids do report the abuse? Like, obviously, there's going to be a lot of, emotion mm-hmm. going on because there's a specific protocol that people should follow or how does that work? Um, I think definitely to be a good listener um, and to listen to what your kids are saying I think I said it earlier is you really do have to believe them when they're telling you something and then um, reporting it and following up on it I think pretty immediately is really important and like you said there could be a lot of distress to parents and so being able to reach out to different resources that could help them with that um, is probably really helpful. Is there anything standard about how you express your um, your feelings about it? Like, you know, some people would just cry, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, should you try not to cry in front of your kids? Is it okay to be angry? Is it okay? Like, what sort of... I think, okay? in general, I think it's good to be honest with, you know, how you're feeling in your emotions. But I think the most important thing for kids is that you show that you are really supportive to them mm-hmm. and that you, again, believe what they're saying and mm-hmm. that you're going to do something about it, right? In a lot of ways, kids look to adults that they trust and care for to kind of help them out. And so you really have to show up in that space that you're going to do that for them. And we talk about trusted adults. And so because I think... The other thing that might happen is the child might not tell the person having the hot chocolate talk with them. Yes. Right? And so if you tell an adult and they don't, you know, we kind of talk about, like, what are the things an adult should do if you tell them Mm -hmm. about a safety rule being broken? You know, and and if they don't do those things, what are you going to do then? Mm -hmm. You're going to tell another adult. adult, Yeah. Right? And so that they keep telling. Because I think there can be these responses of disbelief or denial or pain and and let's be you know with the prevalence it's also parents or caregivers or people that are um having this disclosure might also be traumatized Mm -hmm. and having having experienced that so i think it's important to give kids a lot of avenues for reporting so that they do get heard and that there's some action taken because that's the most important thing is there's some action that happens that that protects them definitely I want to talk just a little more about your parenting style mm-hmm. because I, here's the impression I get, um, about having worked with you and met your kids. Oh gosh, I'm afraid of what you're going to no, say. No, it's a okay. good impression. <laughs> it's that you're, you feel very comfortable in being forthright and very kind of almost adult in your approach with your children mm-hmm. around sensitive or difficult topics. And we call this the grow kinder podcast. We talk about kindness when you think about, you know, your parenting approach and having these um, these kinds of conversations with your kids, how are you, like, injecting kindness into that? Because, you know, you're a very straightforward and direct person. And so how do you think about approaching your children with a sort of kindness to lens. that? Right, a kindness yes. lens. Well, like, for, the, for instance, the topics that we're talking about now, like, when I have these conversations with my kids... You know, we were just talking about, you know, when someone doesn't want to do something, you know, you, you have to stop doing it. And related to that topic is it's just being respectful, right, and being kind and listening 
to what people are telling you. So I think that's how I inject it into those conversations and particularly around these mm-hmm. topics of child sexual abuse uh, yeah. prevention type issues. And do you have any adults in, in your own life that were able to address these topics with you or to or have this kind of approach? Is there anyone that you can kind of think of that was particularly supportive of you or open in a way that allowed you to have these conversations? You know, culturally, I don't think my parents, it wasn't really probably acceptable for them to talk about these topics mm-hmm. with me. So they didn't. It doesn't mean, you know, I was very, very close to my mom growing up. And so we had kind of really open relationship. Mm-hmm. We talked about a lot of things, probably not as deep as these things that we're talking about today. Um, but, you know, we did have a very open, kind of close, we talked about a lot of things, probably mm-hmm. not things like sex or sexual abuse per se, but definitely she was an influence on kind of my idea of like what a close relationship with a, with a parent would be, mm. if that makes sense. You know, just like sort of on the vein of, of kindness, you know, where do you think that fits in, in terms of sort of the trainings that we do? I mean, where do you see those connections in our curriculum? The thing that jumps out to me in particular around this topic of child sexual abuse prevention is where the kindness thing really kicks in for me is really around the adults that support mm-hmm. kids, right? So if you think you asked me about our in our program. So like I say, we have trainings for educators to really be supportive and responsive to kids, particularly when they disclose. And I think you have to have, you know, a lot of empathy and kindness to be able to do that. Um, and then again, around the parent piece, right, and supporting your kids as well. So to me, that's where it really shows up mm-hmm. in the child sexual abuse prevention work. Yeah, that makes me, you know, you're talking about that really makes me think of a particular piece in that training around reframing behavior, because sometimes I think what what you found in the research, and you can speak to this, is kids act in certain ways that can demonstrate that there's some sort of trauma or abuse mm-hmm. or something that they're struggling with. And that behavior can be read as that's a bad kid or and there's a a section in that training about reframing and understanding some of the signs of abuse uh, Mm -hmm. and neglect. And I think there's a kindness to that. Yes, definitely. Thinking about your kids in that way, the kids that you're supporting or serving or raising. Or thinking about, you know, what could be some things that are happening to that kid that might um enable them to exhibit some of those behaviors as well, right? It's a very different lens. And like, I think you're right. It's kind of more of a kindness lens. Do you want to sort of talk about some of those signs or where people might kind of, um, I know that Hot Chocolate Talk has lists of those things. Are there a few things that people might want to delve into deeper if they're noticing certain things in in a child's behavior? I think it can really um, vary, vary <laughs> yeah. depending on the child, right? So to say that, you know, all kids might become withdrawn or mm-hmm. shy or kind of more internalizing um, may be true for some kids and other kids may act out, you know, mm-hmm. kind of more aggressively. So I think, again, it's about recognizing that some behaviors that you may think of as problematic might be symptoms of other things that are going on. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, child sexual abuse. It could be other trauma Mm -hmm. or events that are happening in the home as well. Mm -hmm. Are there some that are more telling than others, like kids, you know, 
practicing behaviors on other kids that have been done to them, you know, something that's a little oh, bit yeah, more like developmentally appropriate sexual yeah, developmentally inappropriate sexual mm-hmm. behaviors, right? Yeah. And I think we list them in our hot chocolate yes. campaign yeah, about there's what a, is actually that's a really useful thing too, I think as a parent because there's so little communication around that, like yeah. and that wasn't something we ever talked about in my family. So yeah. when things would come up I'd be like, "Is this normal?" And yeah. luckily, I can just go stop by Tia's office and ask her. <laughs> um, but but there's a whole um, kind of list to access that I think yeah. is really good just yeah. to educate yourself. Yeah. I think that's really important for parents too and caregivers and other adults is to really educate yourself and um, read up on different resources that there's a lot of really great resources out there mm-hmm. that people can read up on. Is there any other final bits of advice that you'd have for people around the topic? I would definitely say for parents and caregivers to talk to your kids about the topic um, as early as you can, mm-hmm. all the time, very often. When you I say early, well. how early do you mean? Um, three years early, old? Early, yeah. Two or three when, again, like when yeah. you're helping them go to the bathroom and potty yeah. train, when you're giving them a bath, I think it's all when they can talk and have kind of conversations yeah. with you. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, and there's some good, um, you know, examples of developmentally appropriate conversations. So when you're talking about just rules and safety and these are your private body parts and giving them some of the language to have those conversations later. Yeah, always ask mm-hmm. first before mm-hmm. you go with somebody. Right. Or before you take a present. present. Yeah, right. things like habits, that. Habits, right? Yeah. Building good habits. Building good habits. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think it's very, you know, and... and <laughs> Of course, um, we're biased because we're involved in the creation of this campaign. But I just have to say the research has really borne it out in sort of uh, assisting parents and families in their um, understanding of child sexual abuse and their attitudes toward addressing that. Um, uh, I think this campaign and the resources associated with it are really good. And it's one of the things that I found, like I find a lot of our work helpful for me as a parent, but I consistently go back to that Mm -hmm. um, because it is a difficult topic and because it changes with um, developmental appropriateness changes and there's other resources there there's a whole list of other <laughs> uh, resources that you could access so I think that's right too and, and like I said I mentioned that evaluation that was mm-hmm. done by the researchers at the University of Buffalo on these family videos that are in the hot chocolate talk or campaign and parents did find them very useful um, they thought they were great tools to start to have conversations and they also um, did like a pre-post examination of the video. So what they found was after parents watched the videos that they actually increased their motivation to want to talk to their kids. And that increased motivation actually led to talking to their kids. Hmm. So I think, you know, the videos are a great resource. They're really short and they actually are effective in helping you communicate with your kids. It's great when there's something short and effective yes. that you can use. And some of them are kind of funny and yeah. lighthearted. Yeah, that's yeah. a hard thing to do and it's great to know that they're working i mean you know that's something that probably listeners should know about our work is that we don't just put things out there and hope that they work that we take it really seriously to find out how and if they're working yeah how big is your research team tia Jeez, I don't know. I'm losing count. I don't know, seven <laughs> or eight? I don't know. Something eight like that. PhD yeah. researchers <laughs> on staff. So that's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Where can listeners learn more about you and your work and the Hot Chocolate Talk? So you can learn more about the Hot Chocolate Talk at hotchocolatetalk.org. And you can learn more about the work that we do and that all of us do, including myself here at Committee for Children, at our website, which is cfchildren.org. Thank you. Thanks, Tia, for joining us. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Tia Kim, 
Vice President of Education, Research, and Impact at Committee for Children. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org and make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.